Well, we are continuing uh, the book of Philippians this morning. Our sermon is Philippians 1, verse 12 through 26. If you are following in the Pew Bible, that's page 980. If you could, uh, place your finger there and turn with me uh, for our Old Testament reading, which is Genesis 2. And that's page 2 in the Pew Bible. Uh, this is God's abiding word given for his glory and for your good. Uh, give your full attention to it. Uh, Genesis 2, uh, verses 16 and 17. Uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For, the, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, turn to Philippians 1 now, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I, re I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is, far, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever experienced unexpected good news? 
like you just can't believe that something so good has actually happened to you. Uh, maybe it's that job promotion you weren't expecting. You know, you're, you've been promoted, next level up. Or maybe it's as simple as knowing that there's free pizza in your, in your um, uh, lunchroom, right? That's always nice, unexpected, free pizza. Anyways, uh, four years ago, a beautiful girl came back home. She spent the last two years in South Korea teaching English. And when she did come back home, she was already itching to uh, go back to traveling. You know, I never expected to meet this girl. Uh, I never in my wildest dream thought I would marry this girl. Uh, Meeting my wife was completely unexpected. Uh, She came at a time when I was severely discouraged with my internship. I think... You know, unexpected good news is always sweeter. It's always better when it comes in times of difficulty. Uh, The gospel often works that way. It comes and advances in surprising ways. Uh, We often expect it to grow when we have it all together, when we're prospering. But that's not how the Lord typically works. The good news arises out of our troubles. That's the way God works. Uh, This morning, I want us to hang on to this simple idea. In a surprising way, there's good news, there's gospel in our hardship and self-giving. In a surprising way, there's good news, gospel in our hardship and self-giving. And so Paul begins by saying something very unexpected. He says, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So why do you think this would be surprising to the Philippians? Well, remember Paul's situation. He's unjustly in jail. What do you expect from someone in that kind of situation? I'll tell you what you wouldn't expect. Uh, You would not expect someone in this situation to have a positive attitude like Paul's. And I bet the Philippians were deeply discouraged with Paul's imprisonment. Uh, Think about how people would look at you if you were associated with Paul. It would mean trouble. They uh, They would have been dreading persecution. They might even be thrown in jail, just like Paul. You know, meanwhile, us, uh, many of us are scared of criticism. We tremble at the thought of people making fun of us for our faith. Uh, But there is a lot more at stake for the Philippians than with us. Uh, So Paul's positive report sounds a whole lot of crazy for them. Uh, But here's the thing for Paul. Paul sees a bigger picture in the midst of his chains. His shackles are for the gospel. The gospel. Uh, It's cool that it's Father's Day today. Shout out to all the fathers. Because listen to the way Paul summed up the gospel in his greeting. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This good news is about grace that gives us peace. In the gospel, this news, God has become our Father because the work of His Son. The Son has brought us to His Father. And so Paul wants them to know His chains 
are significant because they're for the gospel. They're not just a throwaway in the plans of God. Uh, Paul might be in chains, but the gospel is not. Even through the chains of the captives, this message of hope and liberation is free. You know what, uh, what Joseph says to his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I mean, who would have thought good news can come from being bound? But that's what God does. He loves to bring good news from our pain and our suffering. Friends, family, that changes everything. The world does not have news like that. And I hope you know that this isn't just for people who are in actual shackles. Uh, Because what's Paul's imprisonment about but suffering, affliction, and adversity? We've all in some way or another have been there. I mean, as wonderful as marriage is, sometimes it can be so hard. Uh, They call it a ball and a chain for a reason. Then there's raising children. Props to your parents. I'm knowing, uh, I'm just knowing how difficult it is recently, crying and crying, you know. Uh, We can suffer in our bodies. Our bodies can break down. So I think we can really relate to Paul's imprisonment, even with our own experiences. But imagine if we really believed this. Uh, What if we believed that our sufferings and our afflictions are not a waste, that God has a good purpose in them? I mean, what kind of people would we look like? And Paul knows the gospel is growing in his imprisonment. Uh, How? Uh, Because people are recognizing it. All the guards and a bunch of other people are coming to the knowledge of the gospel. Uh, Paul says they all knew that his imprisonment is for Christ. So what did they understand? They understood that Paul wasn't imprisoned for a common crime against the state. He's a prisoner for Christ. Uh, The Greek actually says that his imprisonment is in Christ. See, it's not simply that Paul is suffering for the Messiah, which is true, but something more is happening. Paul is suffering in solidarity with Jesus. His suffering is Jesus' suffering. His chains are Jesus' chains. It's as if people began to see Jesus himself in shackles. Uh, Paul will later make this clear in chapter 3. Listen to what he says. That I may know him and and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I want you to think about how powerful that is, that we share in Christ's sufferings, and He shares in our sufferings. It means whatever affliction you're facing in this life, Jesus does not abandon you. Jesus is in it with you. He shares your troubles. You have a Savior who will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, But the only ones who really got the significance of this uh, were the brothers, right? Sons who have received God as their father. Uh, 
Paul's chains actually strengthened their faith as they realized that Paul shared in Christ's suffering. They became more confident, not in Paul, but in the Lord. And so with confidence comes boldness. These brothers are now courageously speaking the word. Uh, They became like Peter and John in Acts 4. Uh, In Acts 4, the people told Peter and John not to speak in the name of Jesus. Don't talk about him. Don't teach about him. Just keep him out of your mouth. The people did not want them um, uh, to speak of Jesus because they didn't want the gospel to spread. But here's what Peter and John said to them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so it is with these brothers. They have seen Christ in Paul's chains. The gospel has changed them, and they cannot help but to speak. Listen, don't ever think your hardship is for nothing. God wants to use them to encourage other people so that they might be confident in the Lord. And let me tell you, um, we are most encouraged by the faith of those under trial, aren't we? Uh, Because there's nothing impressive about someone's faith when it's never tested. When someone's faith never is in adversity. We are encouraged most when we see the gospel at work in someone's adversity, in someone's hardship. So don't think that your hardship is for nothing. God uses them to encourage others. Uh, And it turns out, uh, the brothers who were bold to speak weren't all the same. Uh, Conflict with some of these brothers made Paul's imprisonment even more difficult for him. Uh, Paul divides them into two groups. Uh, One group are more like Paul's rivals, and the other group are Paul's friends. The first group are envious, and they preach out of rivalry. They are brothers, but they were jealous of Paul. See, the sad thing is, they were motivated by self. Maybe uh, they want to be known, or maybe they just want more power. Whatever it is, their motives for preaching is tainted, because they were driven by selfishness. And you know what? Paul was a threat to them. I guess that makes sense, right? If you want to be a star, if you want more followers, you would want to eliminate the competition. I mean, after all, Paul is very influential, and he is getting in their way. And so it's not a surprise that Paul is burdened by their jealousy and insincerity. Uh, He says they are trying to afflict him in his imprisonment. They're an affliction to him. Other translations might say they're a burden to him. They're causing him pain. I mean, you know that tension, right? To call someone your brother, yet at the same time be hurt by them. Uh, But the other group has a better motive. Uh, They weren't selfish. They weren't jealous of Paul. They were driven by their love for him, actually. 
it was a um, it wasn't a competition for them because they knew Paul's mission. God put him in prison to make a defense for the gospel. You know, his friends were were cool and all, uh, but why was Paul willing to put up with his rivals' shenanigans? Uh, for Paul, as long as they were pr- uh, proclaiming Christ, they can continue to afflict him. Christ means that much more to him. Uh, so it doesn't matter if Paul is maligned. He's willing to endure all their fa- false motives as long as Christ is preached. But I don't think we should take this to mean that motives behind our preaching, behind our, uh, our talking about the gospel, don't matter. Uh, when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, our motives do matter. Paul cares. Uh, in his other letters, he takes to task uh, these brothers who are, who are proclaiming Christ out of a wrong motive. So it does matter. But what ultimately matters is that Christ is being proclaimed. I mean, this is wonderful. The proclamation of the Messiah was more important to Paul than his comfort. More important than himself. Christ is his health. So he's willing to pass up whatever affliction, whatever comfort he has for the sake of the good news advancing. He's all about the cross. He's all about Christ going forth to the broken. Uh, This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christ crucified is the center of everything for Paul. And if that message is going forth, then Paul is going to rejoice. I wonder if we think that way. Do we, do we love the gospel that much? Are we willing to endure conflict for the sake of the gospel going forth? I think when we do, when we are that committed to the gospel, we will have far more joy in our hearts. And by the way, uh, joy here is not the same as happiness, right? Happiness ebbs and flows with our circumstances. You know, I'm happy when my son is smiling. I'm not very happy when he's screaming his head off at 2 a.m. in the morning. But joy, the joy that Paul has is stable. Joy is anchored to what can't be moved, the gospel. That's the kind of joy Paul has. You know, in a profound way, God advances his gospel most, most clearly through our adversity and conflict. So Paul is resigned to be weak uh, because he understands this. The gospel only comes in power through the weakness of men. Uh, He learned this lesson when the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh. Do you remember? Uh, Here's what he said. But he, Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. But here's what I'm not saying, though. 
I'm not saying that suffering and conflict are good in and of themselves. That's just crazy. We all know that suffering and conflict are not good. And if you think they're good, come talk to me later. Paul acknowledges that his imprisonment is an affliction and that his rivals were making it worse. What Paul has in mind, though, is the same as what James has in mind in James 1, when James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You can have joy in the midst of your trials. That's what's good in your trials. Paul then moves from his present circumstance to the future, a future that included the outcome of his trial. I remember Paul is, is in prison and he's awaiting his trial, whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. You see, even though Paul doesn't know the exact outcome, there's one thing he knows without a shadow of a doubt, that he will rejoice. He will rejoice in whatever happens to him. He says, yes, I will rejoice. And that, that's confidence. In the end, he's confident that this will all turn out for his deliverance. Verse 19. Uh, But Paul is not talking about the future uh, joy, his future joy of getting out of jail. That's not what he's confident about. That's not where his joy is rooted. Because it would make little sense for him to think that his suffering will take him out of jail. Uh, The ESV used the word deliverance, which is okay. Uh, But the word, I think, is better translated as salvation. This will turn out for my salvation. Salvation in the ultimate sense. Uh, Paul actually takes this phrase from the book of Job, where Job is accused by his friends of wrongdoing, uh, that he's caused all his suffering on himself, that God is cursing him. Uh, But Job's response is that his suffering will lead him to his salvation. God is is using his, his suffering for his salvation. Now, this might be surprising, but it's really not if you think about it. Uh, Paul in Acts 14 puts it this way, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God saves, always saves, in the context of difficult trials, in the context of difficulty. And this is one of those instances uh, that God uses for Paul's salvation. But God also saves in the context of prayer. I think that might be even more surprising. Uh, Paul believes the Philippians' prayers will lead him, uh, will aid him to his salvation. And of course, the power isn't in their salvation per se. The power belongs to the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so it's not just that the Spirit supplies help to their prayers, but that the Spirit is given to Paul through their prayers. The Spirit's presence is Paul's help. I mean, no wonder Paul was so confident that whatever happens in his trial, prayer, their prayer and the Spirit will sustain him. He will keep faith. He will endure. And you see this confidence 
in verse 20 and 21. Uh, Paul is eagerly expecting a good outcome to his trial. Uh, But here's the thing. Good for Paul doesn't mean he will be acquitted, that he will live. It doesn't have anything to do whether he lives or he dies. Good for Paul is not being ashamed, that with full courage he would honor Jesus in his body. Uh, Verse 21 is probably one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, uh, but maybe one of the most misunderstood and maybe the most abused. Uh, You know, people tend to say it when something goes terribly wrong in their lives. Uh, They use it as motivation and inspiration, right? But the problem is, it is never it never really takes any particular shape in their lives. They use they use this passage as an emergency. It never really takes root in what they do day to day. When Paul says, "For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain," it's not just a cheesy slogan that belongs in a Hallmark card or a super Christian bumper sticker. Uh, it actually means something. It's not a formless thing for us to say when we need motivation. It takes a particular shape, and it's cruciform. The Christian life is shaped like the cross. Uh, It gives itself for others. Our lives belongs to Jesus. Uh, Why? Uh, Because our fundamental identity has changed. Uh, It means... We no longer live for ourselves. It means we live for God and for others. Do you know what that is? When we live for God and for others. When Christ is our life. That's the undoing of the human curse. Uh, Do you remember the curse God put upon Adam and Eve? Right? The day you eat of the tree of the good of... um, Knowledge, knowledge of good and evil, you shall, not, um, you shall surely die. Eat of this tree, you will die. You know, the moment you disown God, the moment you take your life into your own hands, you will die. You will face the greatest loss. And so here's what the undoing of that looks like. It looks like a life not committed to self, but it, it is entirely devoted to God. And, what, and when that happens, death, instead of being our greatest loss, becomes our greatest gain. So this morning, if your life is in Christ, if your life is wrapped up in the Messiah, then you are not your own. And let me tell you, this is the reason that that so many don't come to God. They won't come because they love their life so much. You know, prosperity can be one of the greatest hindrances to faith. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to, to share the gospel with people who are successful, people who are prospering? Why? 
Why is that? Because prosperity says, no thank you. I don't need God. I'm doing just fine on my own. If that's you this morning, I want you to know something. Your success and prosperity can't handle death. Only Christ can do that. And if He isn't your life, then you will lose your life. Jesus says in John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So that's Paul's fundamental conviction. His life is not his own. And it shaped what he wanted for his impending trial. Paul had a hard choice to make. On the one hand, he, he wants to stay because he knows he can serve the community. He can serve the Philippians. Uh, it would be a great blessing to them. But on the other hand, uh, death means he will be with Christ. He will have unending joy with his Savior. Which is better? Well, it's a no-brainer. Paul says it's far better to be with Christ. Uh, But remember, Paul is absolutely committed to Jesus. For me to live is Christ, he says. His life embodies the Messiah. So what should we expect? We have to expect Paul is going to choose what reflects Jesus most. So what does that look like? Uh, I'll put it like this. A messianic embodiment looks like self-giving. That's the way of the Messiah. Jesus is the suffering servant who gave himself for others. You know, he says, the Son of Man came, to be ser- came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as much as Paul wants to be with Christ, which is far better, he chooses to give himself to the Philippians instead. Paul chooses to forego what is far better for the sake of others. It's for their progress and joy in the faith. And so what do we see? We see the gospel moving from an individual to a community. In verse 12, Paul said that his chains were for the progress of the gospel. Now Paul is concerned Uh, for that same message to progress among them, that they might share in the same immovable joy he has in the gospel, to the end that they all might glory in Jesus. So what about us? Are we willing to forego what we think is better for the sake of others? Are we willing to let go of our comforts so that we might encourage the brethren, our sisters, in the faith. And if we did, what would our community look like? You know, Paul is just actually just reflecting Jesus here, isn't he? Uh, Jesus knew it was far better to be with his Father. But for our sakes, he endured the misery of the cross His life was not his own. He belonged to God. 
The cross was never a thing for Jesus to escape, but it was something for him to embrace. Because he knew it's only through hardship and self-sacrifice does good news come. The gospel comes out of conflict, suffering, and even death. You know, Peter didn't get this for a very long time. And Peter walked with Jesus for a very long time. Peter thought it was unbecoming for the Messiah to suffer and die. But what did Jesus say to him? A stunning rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Peter could not see how good news can possibly come out of such misery. But it is the way of God. God loves to bring good news out of our pain and our weakness. Why? So that we might know it is not based on our goodness or anything else within us, but the power belongs to God. Let me close with this reflection. What would your life look like if you really believed that your life is not your own? What if you really believed that you belong to God? Wouldn't that change everything for you? And I don't know what you're going through this morning or even recently, but I want you to know this. The gospel advances in unlikely times of your life. That's the way it works. It's not when you feel powerful. It's not when you feel secure. It's not when you're successful. But the gospel advances in your lowliness and your affliction. When you are suffering, God shows up and shares good news with you. Friends, uh, there's good news in all of your hardship. uh, Because through them, God is making you more and more like Jesus. And so we have to be and so we have to learn to be content in our weakness and our afflictions and in our adversities. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. Here's a, a fairly lengthy quote. He says, "But we have this treasure this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us." We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's the surprising news of the gospel. It comes when it hurts most. And speaking of the gospel coming in surprising ways, uh, this meal before us this morning, it is surprising. Uh, because it is one of the way, ways that God advances the gospel. I mean, come on, right? The gospel coming through ordinary bread and ordinary wine. You can't make that stuff up. It's surprising, and it is unexpected. 
but it is incredibly wonderful. Because through ordinary bread and ordinary wine, God reminds us of His extraordinary grace. That Jesus' body was broken, His blood was poured out for sinners like you and like me. And so God puts before our eyes and our lips this reality. That Jesus is the bread of life. And Jesus is the wine that satisfies our souls. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders to come uh, that we might partake of this meal. Let us pray. Our Father, you are gracious and compassionate. Your love is steadfast. There is none like you. We ask that you would continue to work by your word and spirit in the midst of our busy week ahead. Give us the grace to remember that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, he who bought us with his own blood. Remind us that you call us to live not for ourselves, but for the sake of others, that we might reflect Jesus' self-sacrifice in this broken world. Uh, Continue to form us into his humble and perfect image. We pray in the name of him who was raised from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.